In this part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he describes how we, who were once dead because of sin, have been made alive in Christ. As much as we might want to take credit for this, Paul says it is all God's doing. This reading is from the Common English Bible, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. At one time you were like a dead person because of all the things you did wrong and all your offenses against God. You used to live like people of this world. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment, just like everyone else. However, God, in his rich mercy, he brought us to life with Christ, while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus, God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. This is the word of the Lord. It's amazing how memory works, or in some cases like mine, how it doesn't work (laughs) at times. The times I need it most to work, it doesn't seem to work. And then things come out of nowhere, and when... I was reading this passage, I was reminded of a 1976 film that I think depicts this passage really well. The film is Cassandra Crossing. It features actors Sophia Loren, I don't know why I remembered the film. Um, (laughs) Actors Sophia Loren, Richard Harris, and Martin Sheen. It's a suspenseful story at least it's supposed to be, a suspenseful story of a terrorist who escapes a Geneva Chemical Institute as an infected human carrier of a deadly plague. The worst thing that could possibly happen, he boards a transcontinental express train with a thousand unsuspecting passengers who are unaware that the authorities have chosen to quarantine the train in order to prevent the spread of the disease at the cost of their own lives. The runaway train has been rerouted from its intended destination toward an unpassable bridge. Well, this is the picture Paul tells his readers that they once lived. Not only were they heading in a wrong direction, but they were unaware of its fatal consequences. Why is it that most of us think that as long as we're moving forward, we're making progress, or at least improving? What if forward were the wrong direction? What if forward is opposite of a Godward-directed life? 
where there's no desire to relate one's life to God, the conditions of our souls make us already dead. To live in defiance of God is to live self-serving, self-indulgent, a self-directed life. Paul calls such a life a life of disobedience. I recently heard Whitworth University's professor of theology, Adam Nieder, speak, and he describes it this way. Sin is simply embracing a life that has no future. It's like going to the track and betting on the wrong horse. Not simply a slow horse, but a dead one. (laughs) Paul tells his readers, including you and me, that we once followed and walked after the ways of this world, which is a way of life that is independent and indifferent toward God a pattern that could be characterized by the world. Here's how Eugene Peterson describes it in his translation from the message. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Paul suggests that there's more at work here than simply our own nature or willfulness. That's not to say he's going to excuse us for being responsible for our life choices. Paul never does that. But he does want us to be aware that there's a larger narrative behind our own choices in life. Evil forces are at work that pull, lure, and compel us to move in a direction opposite God. Forces that work against God's purposes and our own well-being. Which means there's no neutral ground between God and and them. If your allegiance is not toward God, then it will be with such forces and such powers. But now Paul flips it. It's as if we've been reading the the whole story of, of the people of God all the way up to the Gospels, and now comes the good news. And the good news is that we've been redirected. We're no longer heading over that unpassable bridge, our certain ruin. We've been rescued, as it were, from this condition and its inevitable destiny, plunging us to our deaths. We who were once dead in sins and transgressions have been saved, which is another way of saying we've been redirected to live a Godward life, all made possible through Jesus Christ. Through him, God has brought us to life. Or as the NIV said, God has made us alive with Christ. We who were once dead are now made alive. In fact, that is the main verb. You've read seven, you've read seven verses before you get to the main sentence in the whole paragraph. And here it is. God's made us alive in Christ. If you want to know why, then you have to look no further than than God's very character, God's very nature. God is rich in mercy. 
extravagant in love and generous in gifting us with what we need. That's who God is. And now Paul repeatedly uses a phrase by saying in Christ or with Christ to sum up what it means to have our lives be redirected in this way. Because what is true of Christ is now true of us. The power of God that was at work in Christ is now working in us. And what does that mean? It means that God has brought us to life together with Christ. It means that God has has raised us up through the power of the resurrection together with Christ. And God has seated us, exalted us, as it were, in the heavenly realms together with Christ. This change from death to life is entirely God's doing and not ours. So Paul says it succinctly, it is by grace, and you might as well put God's grace there, it is by God's grace you've been saved. Salvation, in other words, is all God's doing. We can't work for it, we can't boast about it. But isn't it in our own natures to want to take credit for something we didn't do? Unless, of course, that something is wrong, and then we're quick to let someone else take the credit. We'll even hint that the credit belongs with them. Uh, I wasn't in the room. It must be there's only one other sibling. (laughs) But we're also inclined to want to take credit for something that people um, don't know who to give credit to. And we'll just say, well, in the absence of anyone else, you can, you can admonish or you can um, celebrate me. Imagine giving this kind of an acceptance speech. I accept this reward on behalf of God and myself because had I not been in need of rescue, God would, would have had no one to save. I'm just glad I could do my part. Recently, I was in the company of a medical team who asked if I knew the time of my birth. And when I said 418, they said, congratulations, you're the winner. And boy, did it feel good to to be a winner. And then they said, wait a minute, was it a.m. or p.m.? And I said, a.m. And then they implied my mom must have not appreciated my timing. And I thought, I didn't plan it. You know, I had nothing to do with my own birth. But on the flip side, can you imagine suggesting something so ridiculous as to take credit for your own birth? It's like, well, I came into this world with... It was a difficult journey, but... (laughs) This is how Peterson suggests it's equally ridiculous to, to think that we've contributed to our salvation. Again, in the message, saving is all God's idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we had done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. So, Paul wants to make sure we really get it, that it registers. So he says it one more time, but adds a preposition. 
It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is how we accept God's gift of salvation. It's our willingness to be open and receptive to God's actions, which is a willingness to surrender and accept what we need. But then going forward to commit ourselves to paying attention, to obeying, to honoring what's happened. Paul also brings up the fact that we live with a reality already in place, that God's rule on earth has begun, but it's not final or fully realized by everyone. We live between a time of promise and fulfillment. We've been redeemed, but we await our completion of that redemption. We experience the presence of God's Spirit, but it's as a first installment and a guarantee of an even greater future inheritance. We've been delivered from the dominion of evil, but such forces have not been eliminated. So we must rely upon God and the armor of God to stand against them. This aspect of living between promise and fulfillment, between the time of Christ's first coming and his glorious return is the primary reason Paul writes letters to churches to tell his readers what a, God, what a Godward life looks like, what God has accomplished in Christ, but then to also say, now here's how we're to live such a life. The whole passage is one of contrast, death, life, the things we once did, and now the things we can do because we're remade in Christ's image. Things we once did with only ourselves in mind, things that were considered offensive to God, things that were characterized as disobedient and demoralizing, things considered destructive of others and detrimental to ourselves. But God's now made it possible for us to live differently in Christ. We've become God's great accomplishment, this new creation, so that we can do things that honor and please God, things which serve for the good of others and the enrichment of our own lives, things God planned for us to do all, the, all along, from the very beginning. From the, from the ordering of all things, this is what God had in mind. This past Friday, family and friends of Helen Phillips gathered here for her memorial. She and her husband, Paul, whom she called Andy, came to Santa Rosa from Colorado in 1972. Andy had been confined to a wheelchair most of their married life as a result of polio, which he contracted after having been released from the Army Air Corps following World War II. They operated um, a bookkeeping business out of their own home. And after Andy retired, Helen continued to work two more jobs. Helen's daughter, Florence, assembled 15 slides depicting her mom's life and had a friend read a brief autobiographical narration Helen had written, summing up her life. It was beautifully done and succinctly done. Um, I know most of us would want 60 to 120 slides of our own lives, but, but 15 did it. And then toward the end, next to the last slide, 
Helen used a phrase that caught my attention that described her way of life. She said, I always felt honor-bound. And I thought, wow, what a way to say it. Here's the context of what she said. I never had a lot of money, but I never went hungry. I had a happy marriage of 50 years, two beautiful daughters, two grandchildren, and many other great relatives and friends. I was blessed by wonderful parents and a good education. I'm very thankful. I've seen some hard times and many good times. I have some regrets, but nothing big. I always felt honor-bound. I tried to be a good example and help others. This is the very point Paul is making at the close of this segment of his letter. We've been rescued from certain death, redirected toward God by a gift of new life in Christ. We are honor-bound to live as an act of gratitude for all that we've received, to reflect what this gift looks like in this world and how it transforms us and changes our direction and our intent as a way of exemplifying Christ's character in all that we do. I'm always amused when theologians and scholars try to define grace. You read this passage and then they go into this lengthy, wordy explanation of what grace is. And you've heard it before. I'm not going to repeat them. To me, it misses the mark. It's like trying to it's like trying to use poetic words in math or something. It just, they don't belong. Grace is this remarkable recovery of what was lost. And it's found again. It's this incredible gift that God has given to us that totally overwhelms us. So much so that we don't go around going, wow, Life is grand, and I'm one of the greatest specimens on the, on the planet. No, we are so humbled by what God has done for us that we live entirely differently. We don't have celebrities in the church of Jesus Christ. We have faithful people who are honor-bound, who say, I get it. I know what's happened to me. And as a result, I'm going to live for him who gave his life for me so that God receives the glory and others are attracted to him like they've never thought possible. May it be so. Amen.